Did British feelings undergo a change in favour of letting bygones be bygones? This involved much reading, some of which has proved fruitful, but some of the analysis remains unavoidably speculative. As a former journalist, I know how difficult, not to say impossible, it is to enter into the minds of numbers of people at any particular moment. Today, Opinion polls and focus groups try to make audible what the Vox Populi is saying, but they are apt to be unreliable, and anyway, they did not exist in 1815. Georges Roudet, a social historian and student of crowd behavior, frankly admits that there is a great deal in the motivation of crowds, whether in their collective mentality or in that of the individuals that compose them, that defies the historian's or the social scientist's analysis, the face of the crowd. Frederick Raphael, writing in The Spectator of 25th of November 2000, makes another useful point about crowd-reading. To seek always to discover what people really think and feel deep down is often to accuse them of greater profundity than they possess. So the task of anyone seeking to establish what the British thought about Napoleon is a challenging one. Even if some part of it can be satisfactorily accomplished, there can be no uniformity. There is no single view about Napoleon, his role in history, and the rights and wrongs of his captivity. As Professor Peter Gale puts it in the preface to his fascinating account of the differing approach to Napoleon by eminent French historians, Napoleon, for and against, it goes without saying that the various writers who have tried to express their opinions of Napoleon and his career have reached different conclusions. A concurrent theme of the book, growing out of the attempt to answer fundamental questions about what really happened at St. Helena, is a reassessment of the role and conduct of Sir Hudson Lowe, the governor of the island, and hence the guardian of Napoleon from 1816 until his death in 1821. Lowe has been reviled by historians on both sides of the channel, and I believe it is possible and justifiable to show him, unattractive though in many ways he was, in a much more favorable light. I do not suppose I will win over the critics— but at least I find myself in the good company of the first Duke of Wellington, who, despite a highly negative view of Lowe as Napoleon's jailer, in the end argued that he had received very shabby treatment. Readers may wonder at the use I have made of the terms Napoleonist and Bonapartist. Orthodox historical definition suggests they are not the same. To be a Napoleonist should mean someone with often boundless veneration for and sympathy with Napoleon as a man and leader of men. Bonapartism, on the other hand, has come in general to mean a personal and authoritarian method of governing which is specially associated with France. It is a recurrent theme in nineteenth-century French history. Apart from the first emperor himself, no one was more Bonapartist than his nephew. Napoleon III, in the way in which he achieved and kept power. General Boulanger, the swashbuckling adventurer in the early days of the Third Republic, was an embryo Bonapartist, even if he supported royalist claims to the throne. More than eighty years later, General de Gaulle, returning to power after years of self-imposed political exile, was suspected, wrongly, of harboring Bonapartist intentions.
For better or for worse, I have used the two terms interchangeably. In this book, to be a Napoleonist is also to be a Bonapartist. Someone who regards the fallen emperor, indeed his whole career from its beginning, with admiration, mingled, once the St. Helena episode had begun, with pity. The admiration was not always total. Even the warmest of English fans found the execution of the Duc d'Anguillon hard to swallow. But in general, the English Napoleonists, Bonapartists, though not numerous, were united in thinking that Bonaparte was a great man, and that Britain had and has much to answer for in her treatment of him. With two important exceptions, I have used secondary sources in telling the story. A selective bibliography will be found at the end of the book. Selective, it has to be. The literature is enormous.